Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. It goes without saying that all of us go through seasons in life where we experience tremendous suffering. Amen? Our spouse leaves us. Our loved one dies. We lose a job. We have trouble making ends meet. A cancer diagnosis takes us by surprise. Um, Suffering in and of itself is awful. It's terrible. It's painful. And yet I'm convinced that what makes suffering even more intolerable and unbearable is suffering in the face of what seems like the absence of God. We call out to God, we we pray, we cry out to God, and it seems as if God is a million miles away. Um, C.S. Lewis is a name that's probably familiar to some of you. Uh, C.S. Lewis was one of the premier Christian thinkers of the 20th century. Um, He authored the Chronicles of Narnia series, uh, which became movies. Some of you read those books or you saw the movies. Um, C.S. Lewis also authored other books in which he invited people to intellectually grapple with the Christian faith and come into a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But what, we, what you may not know about C.S. Lewis is as devoted as he was to God, as committed as he was to Christianity, C.S. Lewis, following the death of his wife, Joy, who was just 45 years old, he went through a dark and depressing season in which he felt that God was totally absent from him. C.S. Lewis writes these words in his 1961 book, A Grief Observed. He wrote this book about two years before he died. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights on the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once, and that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present, a commander, in our time of prosperity, and so very absent, a help, in our time of trouble? Um, C.S. Lewis does a powerful job here setting the stage for what we're going to be talking about this morning. And so we are approaching the end. We are coming to the end of our seven-part sermon series called 24 Hours That Changed the World, uh, based on a book of the same name by Adam Hamilton, who's a pastor out in Kansas. Um, In this message series, uh, we are zeroing in and we are looking at, we are focusing on the last 24 hours of Jesus's earthly life, um, trying to understand all the events that took place during these 24 hours, because these events changed the world, but not only did they change the world, they continue to speak to us today in the 21st century. They will always speak to us uh, whenever we live. And I realize that today's Palm Sunday, uh, when we remember and commemorate how Jesus came into Jerusalem the very last week of his life um, and all the events that took place that week. But in keeping with this sermon series, we're not going to be talking about Palm Sunday today. 
We're not going to be talking about Palm Sunday. Instead, in keeping with this series, we're going to look at the last 24 hours, and specifically, we're going to look at the darkest chapter of these 24 hours, one that casts a shadow on all the others, and that would be the death of Jesus on the cross. When even Jesus, the Son of God, who existed with God for all eternity, even Jesus felt the weight of what seemed like God's absence. Uh, as you could probably tell, today's sermon is going to be a little bit different. Um, it's not going to be filled with very much humor. Uh, we'll have humor and jokes next week on Easter, but not a whole lot this morning. Uh, this is going to be a more meditative and contemplative sermon. But my hope and my prayer is that by God's good grace, by the time we finish this sermon, we will know in the deepest expression of who we are, our soul, God's presence and God's grace and God's love, even in the midst of what can sometimes feel like God's absence. And so our scripture reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we are primarily drawing from the Gospel of Mark in this message series. This is how Mark records the death of Jesus on the cross. This is Mark 15, verses 24 through 39. If you'd like to follow along, the words are up here in the monitor. Then the soldiers nailed him, that would be Jesus, to the cross. They divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who would get each piece. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. A sign announced the charge against him. It read, the king of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha, look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were gonna destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests and teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. Even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. And then at 3 o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. Eloi sounds a whole lot like Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. Wait, he said, let's see whether Elijah comes down or whether Elijah comes to take him down. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he exclaimed, this man truly was the son of God. The word of God for the people of God to which we all say, thanks be to God. After being subject to physical and emotional torture, as we talked about last time, Jesus is crucified. And crucifixion, as we're all aware, Crucifixion was a horrible way to die. It was a terrible way to die. Not that any of us would ever want to choose how we die, but if we were put in a very unusual circumstance where we, where we had to choose how we were going to die, crucifixion would simply not be on that list. Uh, the Roman philosopher Seneca, who was a contemporary with Jesus, he once famously said that if you knew in all likelihood that you were going to be arrested and crucified, it would be better to commit suicide. That's what Seneca said. Uh, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian in the first century, he called crucifixion the most pitiable of deaths. 
the chief goal of crucifixion was to inflict the maximum agony, the maximum agony for the longest possible time. It was pretty common for the crucified person to hang up on the cross for days on end, not just hours, days on end, until that person finally died, usually by asphyxiation because they were so exhausted they couldn't pull themselves up in order to obtain enough oxygen to breathe. And then once the person died, the person normally wasn't buried. The fact that Jesus is buried after he's crucified, that's actually the exception and not the rule. Normally what would happen to the crucified person is the body would be left up there on the cross, or if the body was taken down, it would be tossed on the ground for animals to come and devour it. Only in Jerusalem where Jesus is crucified did Rome allow provision for family or friends to collect the body and to give it a proper burial. But even that didn't happen very often. Now, it's typical for us to think of Jesus as being high above the ground as he's being crucified. And yet, archaeologists remind us that Roman crosses were no more than nine feet tall. Just nine feet tall. So if we allow room for a sign at the top of the cross, which displays the charge of the crucified person, what did Jesus' sign say? That he claimed to be, or that he was, king of the Jews. And Mark doesn't tell us this, but another gospel writer tells us that the sign was written in three languages. Uh, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, or I'm sorry, Latin, Aramaic, and Greek, so that everybody could understand it and read it. So if we allow room for that sign at the top of the cross, Jesus is probably no more than two or three feet off the ground. Which means, think about this, he's no more than two or three feet above the women who stand beside him, including who? His mom, who gave birth to him, who raised him. He's no more than two or three feet above the disciple whom he loves, presumably John, who wrote the Gospel of John. He's no more than two or three feet above these religious leaders who mock him, ridicule him, degrade him. Jesus can stare into their eyes. They can stare into his. He can hear all the conversations that they're having. He can see these soldiers as they're gambling for his clothing. This was an awful way to die. Mark tells us that Jesus hangs on the cross for how long? Six hours. From 9 a.m. until 3 in the afternoon. And during those six hours, things only get worse. Mark says that at noontime, and what happens at noontime? Well, the, the sun is shining, right? Well, at noontime, when the sun is supposed to be shining, what happens? Darkness fell across the whole land. Mark is not simply talking about what's going on with the clouds and the weather. Mark is saying, in a cosmic sense, things are bleak. Evil has descended. And then during his last moments, right before he dies, Jesus utters a cry that is so poignant, so powerful, that Mark, whose gospel is written in Greek, he records it exactly as Jesus says it in the original Aramaic. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? The more traditional translation is, why have you forsaken me? Even Jesus, the Son of God, feels forsaken by his Father at the very hour when he needs him most. You ever felt that way before? I'm Tim Allen. You all know that name. 
actor, comedian. He spent his entire career making people like us laugh. Tim Allen shares that when he was just 11 years old, you may not know this about Tim Allen, when he was just 11 years old, his father was killed by a drunk driver when his dad was driving home from a college football game. His dad was immediately killed as soon as the vehicle hit him. Decades later, Tim Allen says that his father's death changed everything forever. This is what he said in an interview back in 2012. Part of me still doesn't trust that everything will work out all right. I knew my father was dead, but I was never satisfied with why he was dead. I wanted answers that minute from God. Do you think this is funny? Do you think this is necessary? And I've had a tumultuous relationship with my creator ever since. Tim Allen's not alone. Folks, I can't tell you how many times as a pastor, I've had people come up to me or make an appointment with me, and they'll say to me, Pastor, where was God when I lost my job? Or, Pastor, where was God when my spouse left me? Pastor, where was God when my loved one died? Pastor, where was God when I got that cancer diagnosis? Well, here's the question. Where was God when God's own son was being crucified? Does God really abandon Jesus? Does the father actually turn his gaze and look away from his crucified son? Some people think so. Some people, and for the record, I'm not one of them, and I'll explain why in a minute, but some people making sense of these words, this line from the cross, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? They'll suggest, well, at this moment, Jesus is carrying the weight of sin. And since God is holy and God is perfect, God can't stand to be around sin. So God is forced to look away from Jesus. And I want to say that while it's true that Jesus bears our sin at the cross, as Paul says so powerfully in 2 Corinthians 5.8, he says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. While it's true that Jesus bears our sin at the cross, I find this explanation that for that reason, God turns his back on Jesus to be utterly incomprehensible. Why would God turn away from Jesus when Jesus is in the midst of his greatest saving act? And after all, didn't God want Jesus to go to the cross? Didn't that become apparent to Jesus when he was in the garden and he was praying, Father, if it's possible, please take this cup of suffering away, but I want your will to be done and not my own? And besides all this, remember that Jesus is one of the persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that there is eternal unity within the Godhead. So with this explanation, what we're actually saying is that sin is stronger and greater than the unity within the Trinity. Of course that's not true. It's not that God turns away. Rather, it's that part of what we are seeing in these words, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Part of what we are seeing in these words is the full humanity of Jesus. The full humanity of Jesus that Jesus experiences at the cross what all of us experience to a lesser degree in our lifetime. A season when the silence of God is so heartbreaking and so painful that it seems as if God has pulled away and we feel forsaken, abandoned. Pain, doubt, questions creep in. The joy of God's presence is gone from us and our prayers seem to go no higher than the ceiling. And folks, I don't know about you, but this gives me comfort. It does. It gives me comfort to know that Jesus actually comes to a place where he feels compelled to cry out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? 
It's not that God has abandoned Jesus because God is just as present at the cross as he is during every other moment of Jesus' life. But Jesus feels that abandonment, which means Jesus knows exactly what we feel when we sometimes feel abandoned by God. On his 39th birthday, uh, poet Christian Wyman, uh, he was diagnosed with an incurable form of blood cancer. Imagine being diagnosed with cancer when you're just 39 years old, and of all times, this happens on your birthday, when you're supposed to be celebrating uh, this gift of life. Well, he wrote openly, Christian Wyman did, about the agonizing and even degrading effects of his illness and the treatments. This is what he said. It's pretty graphic stuff. He says, I have had bones die and bowels fail. Joints lock in my face and arms and legs so that I could not eat, could not walk. I have passed through pain I never could have imagined. Pain that seemed to incinerate all my thoughts of God and leave me sitting there in the ashes alone. When this diagnosis came, uh, Wyman's career was really blossoming and taking off. He was a rising star in the literary world. But the suffering nearly destroyed his faith in God. What ultimately led Christian Wyman back to God, he found a companion in the Jesus who suffers. He, wanted, he went on to say this, I am a Christian because of that moment on the cross when Jesus, drinking the very dregs of human bitterness, cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The point is that God is with us, not beyond us in suffering. The point is that God is with us, not beyond us in suffering. Can somebody say God is with us in suffering? Can we say that again? God is with us in suffering? In the face of brutal pain, when the ground is ripped out from beneath us and we feel as if the world is crashing in all around us, we don't want answers, do we? We want a person. God is there in the person of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, this Jesus knows what it means to suffer because Jesus suffers himself. And it's not even that Jesus suffers himself, but while Jesus is suffering and feeling that sense of abandonment, Jesus still holds out hope in the goodness of God. He ultimately believes and trusts that God is going to vindicate him and God is going to rescue him. You see, it's important to remember and keep in mind that when Jesus says these words, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus doesn't just pull those words out of thin air. He doesn't just make them up. Do you know what he's doing? He's quoting the Bible. He's quoting the Old Testament. Do you know what book he's quoting? The book of Psalms, Psalm 22. And here's what we have to remember about the Psalms. The Psalms are the songbook of the people of Israel. The people of God, the people of Israel, they would sing the psalms in worship, in worship services like we're having this morning. In fact, if you go to Psalm 22 in the Bible, and I encourage you, maybe at some point today or some point this week, go to Psalm 22 in the Bible. Here's what you'll find. This is from my Bible. At the very top of Psalm 22, this is what it says. For the choir director, that's somebody like Chris Kovic over here, or Tamara Alexander, who's on our staff. For the choir director, a psalm of David, David was king over Israel, uh, David wrote a good majority of the Psalms, to be sung to the tune, Doa Dedan. Now, what's all this about? Well, the editor who has compiled the Psalms, the Psalms were written by various people, David, some others. Well, the editor who's taking all these Psalms 
and bringing them all together into one big book. We have 150 psalms in the Old Testament. What this editor is doing is the editor is telling us that this psalm, Psalm 22, it is meant to be sung. And it's meant to be sung to a certain tune. Doa the Dawn, which has been lost over the years. And here's the thing about songs. This is really important. You can't say one set of lyrics without calling to mind all the other lyrics. Isn't that true? For example, if I were to say Amazing Grace, I'm going to say it because I'm not a singer like Chris and some others, but if I were to say Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, what would you say? I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Let's try it again. If I were to say, you put your right hand in, you put your right hand out, you put your right hand in and you shake it all about, you do the hokey pokey and you turn yourself around, that's what it's all about. All right? All right. Let's do this one more time. If I were to say, just a small town girl, living in a lonely world, she took the midnight train going where? Anywhere. And you would also say, just a city boy, born and raised where? South Detroit. He took the midnight train going anywhere. You all are journey fans. This is awesome. Praise God. But that's the thing about songs. You don't just say one lyric. You don't take one lyric out of context. You call to mind all the other lyrics. So with that being said, listen to the lyrics of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. Yet, somebody say yet. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted in you, and you rescued them. They cried out to you and were saved. They trusted in you and were never disgraced. There's this back and forth that happens here in the psalm. There's despair, but there's also hope. It goes back to despair here. But I am a worm and not a man. I am scorned and despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads saying, is this the one? who relies on the Lord, then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. Now, wait a minute. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? Isn't that what's happening here at the cross? Listen again to Mark 15. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha, look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, save yourself. Come down from the cross. The leading priests and teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. No wonder Jesus calls to mind this psalm. This is exactly what's happening. This is what the psalm goes on to say. Uh, this is verses 16 through 18. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have done what? They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. Do you see the connection? Again, what does it say here in Mark 15? This is verse 24. Then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. They divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who would get each piece. The words of Psalm 22 are being fulfilled right here in our midst. 
And this is how Psalm 22 begins to end. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. Praise the Lord, all you who fear him. Honor him, all you descendants of Jacob. Show him reverence, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. He has not done what? He has not turned his back on them. But has listened to their cries for help. He has not turned his back. In other words, he has not abandoned them. Jesus has in mind the totality of this psalm or this song as he hangs on the cross. This psalm begins in despair, but it ends in triumph. He has in mind the, whole, the totality of the psalm. He knows that even as he feels abandoned, that God hasn't abandoned him. And not only that, but God's going to vindicate him which of course is what happens three days later when he rises from the dead, as we'll talk about next time. Folks, my encouragement to us, my encouragement to you, you're going through a bad season, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. Look to the cross. Cling to the one who during those six hours felt abandoned by his father and yet even so knew that his father hadn't abandoned him. And he ultimately maintained his conviction in the goodness of God. I end my sermon with these words from German theologian Jürgen Moltmann. God weeps with us, so we may someday laugh with him. God weeps with us, so we may someday laugh with him. Or as the psalmist puts it in Psalm 30, though the sorrow may last for the night, his joy comes in the morning. The worst thing is never the last thing. Easter joy is on the horizon. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, I don't claim to speak for the people here in this room or the people worshiping online right now. But I have a sense that because they're human, that they've had a season where all hope seemed lost. Or maybe they're going through such a season right now. God, I pray that if that's the case, you would remind them, remind all of us, you never leave us. You never forsake us. In fact, in Jesus Christ, your promise is to always be with us. That's what it means to call you Emmanuel, God with us. God, even as you were with Jesus, your son, you are with us right now. And remind us, God, that the worst thing is never the last thing. That your joy is on the horizon. May we put our trust and our hope in you, even in moments that are difficult and hard. We love you, we praise you. We're so grateful for the love that you show us in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.